0: Acts thirteen one through twelve, please turn there in your new testaments acts thirteen one through twelve and as you 're turning there, I think about the year two thousand when Gina and I read a book together that uh, just captivated us. We liked the book so much we began to look for documentaries to see some pictures and to hear the story narrated out in, in different ways. The, the book, and I would recommend it highly to you, um, it's not a Christian book, but the book's called Endurance. Uh, the entire title is Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage by Alfred Lansing. If you write that down, you can Google that this afternoon and, and, and maybe get that this week. Uh, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage. Another couple had recommended this book to us and so we were reading it out loud together and we were spellbound by the raw courage and daring of Ernest Shackleton, the great British explorer who wanted to, to go by boat to the South Pole. This was in the, uh, right at the turn of the 19th century uh, you know, it's, it's hard to go to the South Pole now. It was really hard to go to the South Pole in a boat with sails and, and everything. And, and, um, and then, and I won't give too much away. Well, I'll probably give more away than I need to. But, but you need to understand that it went horribly wrong. I mean, they, they made it way down into the polar ice cap. Finally, the ice just crushed the boat. And they had to walk. Walk back over all the ice flows and drag little boats. And they were either walking or in these horrendous seas in these little boats. And Ernest Shackleton's leadership brought all of them back to South America. It's an amazing story. It all started with the following ad in the Times of London newspaper. This ad appeared December 29th. 1913, and here was the ad quote, men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Over 5,000 men responded to that ad. 5,000 people. Eager to sacrifice everything for the prospect of some meaningful adventure in life. Paul would tell us this morning that the adventure of grace, that the adventure of the advance of God's kingdom, the advance of God's church is like this. It is not easy. There is opposition, it's difficult. Don't say, This must not be God's will, it's hard say, this must be God's will. It's hard. And there is a sense of excitement and drama in the kingdom. And Christ wins. And so I have this simple question today from Acts 13 to you personally and to us as a church. Are you up for the adventure? Do you want a meaningful adventure To be your life? Do you want the adventure that God has called us to? That you were made for? The one that counts for eternity? Acts 13, 1. Now there was, there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius, that's the Roman name for Luke, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to the island of Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis which was the largest city on Cyprus they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John actually John Mark who would write later the gospel of Mark they had John to assist them as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, the capital, they came upon a certain magician or sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, the governor of that island, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, the another name for Bar-Jesus, Elymas, for that is what the meaning means, magician, opposed Barnabas and Saul, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You are, you son of the devil... You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and all villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here's the adventure put into two phrases. Mission leads to opposition. And secondly, when we overcome through Christ, people come to Christ. That's what this text is saying. Mission Trusting God, living the adventure, mission leads to opposition. And when we overcome through Christ, people come to Christ. First is the idea that mission leads to opposition. The church at Antioch had five prophets and teachers. Uh, It sounds kind of like Highlands, man. There are a lot of people that can teach and preach around the church of Antioch. And God blessed that church it was a very dynamic church, and these were an interesting group of people. Of course, you have Barnabas and Saul, who would be two of the, the greatest leaders of the entire early church. And then you had, uh, do you notice, Menaean, who is the, quote, lifelong friend of Herod. You know Herod? <laughs> he, the lifelong friend of Herod comes to Christ. He is now a, a teacher, a preacher, a prophet, forth the Scriptures in the, uh, the church here at Antioch. And then there is Simeon called Niger, meaning Simeon the Black. And, and, and scholars believe that this man came from Ethiopia, probably someone of great learning, of, of great cultural standing, not the Ethiopian eunuch per se that we read about in, in Acts chapter 8, but somebody who also had come to Christ, been set on mission by Christ, is in Antioch, and is now a preacher, a teacher, a prophet in this church. The church in Antioch was going great guns. In fact, the church at Antioch was rapidly becoming and did become the center of early Christianity as the church in Jerusalem fell on hard times for decades. Remember, Paul's always taken up an offering to allay the, the miseries and the lacks of the church in Jerusalem. It's going to be all these these new Gentile churches around the Roman world that are going to take care of the mother church, if you will. And this church in Antioch becomes the new center of early Christianity only later for Ephesus to become that center. And we see the center of Christianity moving out into the Gentile world and we'll see it that it's moving out through the one that God called to be the the light to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. And this is the Apostle Paul. I mean, that church was missional. That church was on a mission right there in Antioch. They were a redeemed community reaching out at the intersections of life and culture. But as they sought the Lord in prayer and in fasting, God revealed to them something that they might not have initially wanted to hear. What God said to the church at Antioch, which would turn out to be the, the, a pivotal moment in, in how we in Mississippi eventually become believers, we're mainly Gentiles, is, is, is basically the Holy Spirit says, I want you to take your two of your pastors, Paul and Barnabas, and I want you to lay hands on them, set them apart to be sent out on a mission. And what's so neat about this is that this church... No, not a very old church. A church still just captured by the grace of God. You know that when you first come to know Christ and you say, this is what I know. I was blind and now I see. Or if you came to Christ early and there's this time where you just kind of kick in, you know, and the Lord begins to really draw you close to Himself, draw you into the kingdom, and you say, this is what I know, that the gospel is powerful. I want to live for this. That was what was going on in the church of Antioch, and they sent away Paul and Barnabas. And can you imagine the leadership drain when Paul and Barnabas are sent off staff, if you will, in the church of Antioch? And what happens is this missional church on the ground becomes the missionary church, launching what we now know as the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and he would have three missionary journeys and it would be revolutionary what happened through these missionary journeys we read that the Spirit of God led Paul and Barnabas and they were just following as the Lord led them they first came down off the mountain uh, mountains around Antioch and they they went down to uh, to the port city of Antioch kind of a sister city of Antioch called Seleucia And at Seleucia, on a clear day, you can see the mountains rising on the island of Cyprus. On a clear day, you can see Cyprus from there. And they they boarded a ship at Seleucia, and they they made their way out to Cyprus, and they, they landed at the largest city It's on the eastern side of the island called Salamis. And so, you know, what they did, of course, being believers who were raised in the synagogue of the Jews and believing that Christ completes the Old Testament, He is the Messiah, they went to the Jewish synagogues, we read, and they began to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. And they began to proclaim the resurrection from the dead. And people began to believe. And and from there, they kind of made their way through the island. It's 90 miles from Salamis to Paphos, which is the capital, which was the capital of that time of the island. Actually, they kind of refer to it as New Paphos because the, the town, the old town of Paphos, had been destroyed in an earthquake. And the Roman government sent m- enough money to reconstruct the entire town. Cyprus was kind of like Hawaii in the ancient world. Temperature is beautiful, beaches are beautiful, the people are friendly. Everybody wanted to go to Cyprus. In the ancient world, and the Romans loved finally being in control of Cyprus, and they poured money into into Cyprus. And uh, as they rebuilt this this town of Paphos, the governor of the Roman proconsul or, or or governor was named Sergius Paulus. And Paul and Barnabas began to to teach in the synagogues there in Paphos. And you know he had heard, I'm sure. If you, if, as we read on in Acts, we're going to see that a lot of dust gets stirred up everywhere Paul and Barnabas go because they're preaching the gospel. And so I'm sure he had heard as they kind of made their way one little town after another from Salamis to Paphos uh, about them. And I'm sure that what he wanted was to, is to bring them before him. It's kind of a command performance, you know, you got to come. He wanted to hear what it was all about. He wanted to hear the Word of God. He actually invited the Apostle Paul to come preach to him the Gospel. And God is at work here. I mean, what if the leader of the entire island becomes a Christian? What would happen then? I mean, we've got people becoming Christians. We've got all kinds of things. The Spirit of God is leading, leading and moving with great power. And now it looks like the potentially the, the leader of the entire culture could become a Christian. Wouldn't that be great? Enter Satan. This is when opposition rises. This is my territory. Not God's territory. You don't come into my island, I'm the prince of this world, so to speak, and take it over with the Gospel that easy. And so this opposition Arises. Remember, mission leads to opposition. Satan doesn't like it when we live by faith. Satan doesn't like it when we love people boldly in Jesus' name. Satan doesn't like it when we preach the gospel of the forgiveness of sins through the complete work of Jesus and not our own works. He would love to keep people in bondage to their own works, in bondage to their superstition. In bondage to their spiritual lethargy or thinking they're okay or whatever it is that that they are just happily, sleepily, or miserably in bondage to. When we obey God and reach out toward other people with the gospel, you can bet on it. You can set your watch. Opposition will come. Jesus said that. Jesus said over and over to his apostles. They are going to get dragged before these people and they were going to get beaten and and all of this was going to happen. Remember, even in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. Be glad when you are persecuted because the prophets before you were persecuted. He went as far as to say, they're going to treat you just like they treat me. And I wanted to look at this passage in particular this morning. Not because the opposition is the greatest that Paul and Barnabas or, or Paul and Timothy or Titus, whoever Paul is with, moving forward in Acts. Not that this is the, the most pressure they'll ever receive in opposition. It is not. I mean, they're, they're going to be one inch with, of their life several times before this adventure uh, comes to a conclusion and Paul goes to heaven when he's beheaded by Nero, the emperor. I, I wanted to look at this, not because it's the greatest opposition, but because Luke is saying something important to us that right off the bat, when Paul is set on mission, the mission that God's called him to, there's opposition. And what Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, Luke the doctor, you know, what Luke is is, is doing is, is kind of what's called a parallelism. And it's real important to see that in Acts chapter 8, Peter is sent up to Samaria. Samaritans were kind of half Gentiles, half Christianity, I mean, half Jews, rather. And they were considered Gentiles and unclean, of course, by the Jews. And we read in Acts chapter 8 that the apostles heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God through Philip. And so they sent Peter and they sent John up to Samaria. And immediately, Peter is confronted. By this guy called Simon the sorcerer, Paul is sent out, led by the Holy Spirit. First goes to Cyprus, immediately. Bar Jesus or Elemus, which just means sorcerer, the sorcerer. Do you understand that this is the opposite? These are official representatives of Satan. <laughs> These are sorcerers. They don't just—they don't—they barely get out of the gate when the occult is right in their face. When, 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 uh, like uh, incarnated, satanic, official satanic stuff, sorcery is right in their face. And Luke wants us to see this parallel, and Luke wants us to see how Satan is utterly defeated by the power of Christ, and how through this opposition, and it was through the very opposition that the gospel just broke out in the Gentile world. That this was the moment that just kind of shifted the gears into great outreach as, as, as there is overcoming. Now Luke describes Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus, as, quote, a man of great intelligence. We know that he is also very spiritually interested. You know, he's a Roman. The Romans allowed the Jews to, to have their own religion. They, you know, they, they, they were good about that in some times and not good about that in other times. We know he was interested in the local religion. We know he was interested in Judaism because he had this guy named Bar-Jesus as kind of his spiritual consultant. Now, just you're probably thinking, Bar-Jesus, what is that about? Bar means son of, so it's son of Jesus, now, you don't need to think about Jesus of Nazareth. This Bar Jesus doesn't have anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. It's just the Greek way of saying Bar Joshua or son of Joshua. Now, there's the Jewish name. You understand the word Jesus is Greek for Joshua? The word Joshua, you know, like the guy who came after Moses? Jo- the word Joshua means he shall save. You shall call his name Jesus, that's the Greek. You shall call his name he shall save because he shall save. His people from their sins, the angel told uh, Joseph. And so Bar-Jesus it just means the son of salvation or the son of Joshua. And this is the God that the proconsul has been listening to because he wants to know what the real deal spiritually is. And Bar-Jesus has got him wrapped around all this these axles of, of the occult and, and all the things that, that I'm sure that he would have to do to appease God and... All the fears and all the all the kind of religiousness, and so there's always a, there's always another day and there's always another paycheck for Bar Jesus, because Bar Jesus doesn't offer any salvation. He offers a treadmill of fear and duties to appease God. And when Paul and Barnabas say, "Let me tell you about salvation, it's free." Yes. Salvation is by works. Jesus has done all the works. Jesus has not only lived the perfect life in our place, He has not only fulfilled the law of Moses, the law that we can never fulfill, Jesus has died the death in our place that God requires for punishment for our sins. And so salvation is now freely offered by the One who not only was crucified on a tree, but who has raised from the dead and has power and authority to give to any who ask in faith what he has already completely earned on their behalf. That's not a happy moment for Bar-Jesus because he will not have any employment if Sergius Paulus believes that it's already done. So what does Bar-Jesus or Elemus do? He just pulls out all the stops. We don't know exactly what he does, but... um, I mean, think about Hotep and, and Hoy in, the, in the, you know, the Prince of Egypt, the movie you're playing with the big boys now. You know how Moses put the snake down and, and Moses shows the power of God in the plagues and Hotep and Hoy, they're the magicians, the sorcerers of, uh, of, of Pharaoh and so they do, they kick into high gear and do counterfeit, um, kind of counterfeit miracles. They want to show that they have power too. And, And don't you love that that little scene in the Prince of Egypt? You know, I think it's hilarious you're playing with the big boys now. That is exactly what's going on on Cyprus. And so, mission leads to what? Opposition. In his life, in my life, in your life, should you dare continue on this adventure. Should you dare continue. Live and love boldly by faith and proclaim the free grace of Jesus to people. Mission leads to opposition. But secondly, when we overcome through Christ, which is what happens here, people come to Christ. Satan can't win. You know, the more he tries, the greater the overcoming is. The more dramatic he is, the more dramatic his defeat is. It must be hard being the evil one. Thrown down from heaven because of his pride to take over the throne of God? No. You need to understand something about God and the devil. Yes, in case you're visiting, we do believe in the devil. And we believe in demons and we believe in angels. We believe in a a spiritual realm that is real, that is happening. We believe in the, the pressure on human souls at this very moment. In fact, maybe to try to convince you not to listen to the truth of God's Word and not to give your life to this adventure of the Gospel. But what we know about Satan is that he's not opposite God like Satan versus God on the field of battle. Satan's got tanks and... God's got tanks and Satan, you know. No, God is here. Satan is an angel. The opposite of Satan is like Gabriel, okay? Or Michael maybe would be a, the, the, the angel. There is no way. Satan was defeated on the cross. God's kingdom is coming and and, and there's nothing Satan can do You know what we're down to? We're not down to whether Satan's kingdom will ever throw God's kingdom. We're down to, just like in Iraq and Afghanistan, we're down to an insurgency. We're down to terrorism. That's what we're down to. We're down to deceiving. We're down to smoke and mirrors. Didn't say that it wasn't well executed. Didn't say that it was not incredibly instinctive and and that Satan does not have... Unbelievable um, insight into the human soul. Y'all read C.S. Lewis's book *The Screwtape Letters* if you'd like a kind of an interesting take on uh, what that might look like. And bar Jesus, it, he, he he had kind of the home court advantage with Sergius Pallas, right? And he'd been he'd been Sergius Paulus's closest, we assume, spiritual advisor, and and he's try, he's bringing the hoodoo, you know, he's bringing the the, the, the insurgency, you know, to try to, to get Sergius Paulus to, to consider the Gospel as being foolish. which Jesus said, the Gospel is a, a stumbling block to the Jews because cursed is anybody who's hung on a tree and, and the Messiah can't be hung on a tree. And last time I checked, Jesus was crucified. Stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And so... Paul finally has enough. And what does Paul do? This is so interesting. I mean, this is like, like, you know, apprentice apostle in his first outing against Satan, so to speak. And there's going to be lots more. What does he do? Paul remembers when he was in opposition to the gospel. Paul remembers how he was literally taking troops to go bring the the church of Damascus back in chains, and he would have gone to every city in in the Roman Empire to bring him back had God not stopped him on the way, had Jesus not shown himself to be the Messiah that Paul as a Jew had been studying all those years. Paul bowed to knee to Jesus Christ. But do you remember what Jesus did to Paul? He blinded him. And, and Paul couldn't see. And Paul, who's riding a war horse to go get the Christians, is knocked off that horse. He is converted to the, the wonder of God's love by the, the very Jesus he, he persecuted. And he's, and he's just had to be led, you know, very powerless, very led by the hand into, into Damascus. So Paul goes, I know what you do when you need somebody to be stopped. You son of the devil... You perverter of truth, you you who make crooked the straight ways of the Lord, you will be blind. (laughs) It's exactly what Paul does. Paul remembers exactly how how suddenly being blind takes you out of control or the appearance of control, and and a mist of darkness is perceived by by Bar-Jesus or or Elemus, and he can no longer see. And, and it says that he is groping and, and now this false prophet has to get people to lead him by the hand. Meanwhile, Sergius Paulus clearly understands that Satan and Elemas or Bar-Jesus are not opposite of God in power and that Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, because he, Paul, was preaching the gospel of eternal life that comes to us through the resurrection. And all that Jesus won on the cross is given to those who believe, not by works, but by belief. And Sergius Paulus knows in his heart at that point that it is true. The governor, the Roman proconsul, who at that time answered to the Senate of Rome, Bow the knee, and put his trust in Jesus. The text, said he, text says he believed. He believed. When we overcome, through Christ, the opposition that comes from joining the mission, when we overcome through Christ, when we continue to look to Him and, and, and His power confronts the, uh, the powers of Satan, in fact, you'll see, he says, God make you blind. He didn't say, I'm making you blind. What happens when we confront it and Jesus wins is that people come to the Lord. Now, this is huge because this was the game changer for the Apostle Paul. If, if you want to ask in Paul's adventure of grace, what was the moment in your entire ministry, when you got exactly what God was calling you to and what it was going to look like, he would say, Sergius Paulus on Cyprus. And here's the reason Paul had exclusively been speaking in the synagogues up until this point, or in the, the churches, the church in Damascus, the church in Arabia. And, and, you know, he was persuading people. But Paul had not yet gone directly to the Gentiles. Where there were Gentiles hanging out with Jews, yes. But Paul was raised on this idea that it's the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And that is exactly what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. First to the Jews. Then to the Gentiles. It is in Cyprus, and only because the governor of the entire place gave him a command performance, made him come without any mediation of any synagogue, that he goes direct with the gospel to this Gentile ruler, and the, and the guy comes to Christ, and the power of God overcomes Satan. And now Paul sees what it's going to look like, and that's exactly what it's going to look like. It doesn't matter... Where you go now in the book of Acts, Paul comes into a city. If there's a synagogue, he, his first question in the city is, excuse me, can you tell me where the Jewish synagogue is? Because he's going to preach in the synagogues, and then he's going to the marketplace, and he's going to go preach to the Gentiles direct. In a place like Philippi, where there was no synagogue, he went straight to the Gentiles, down to the river, and a lady named Lydia believed, and others believed, and the church started meeting in her house. This is the moment where he goes, I get it. What Annas told me, Ananias told me, that God told him, he is my chosen instrument. I will put him before kings, rulers, check. It's already happened. And he will preach to the Gentiles and the children of Israel. Check. And then that little part, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Check. And from this time on, Saul takes on a different name. No, God did not say, you are now Paul. You were what? Saul. Now Jesus said to Peter, you are now Peter or Petros, rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. God didn't say anything like that to Saul. Saul took the name Paul which is a Greek name. Why would Saul at this moment take the Greek name? Because he's going to the Greeks. Because he's going to the Gentile world. And do you know what Paul in Greek means? You probably think it means Saul in Hebrew. It doesn't! <laughs> Paul or Paulus, like Sergius Paulus, <laughs> Paulus means little, the little one. That's what it means, the little one. Paul said, I want to give up being Named after the first king of Israel. And I want to be called from now on the little one. I want to go through all the Gentile world known as the little one. (laughs) And preach the gospel. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, says, we, we, we have a suspicion why Paul chose this name. Because Paul always said, and he said over and over, when it comes to being an apostle, I'm the little one. I'm the least of the apostles. I came to be an apostle as one abnormally born. That Jesus had to meet with me later than these other people. Jesus had to appear to me. And so Paul never considered himself the greatest of the apostles, did he? He always considered himself the little one. In fact, he took the name the little one for the rest of his life. Don't you love the humility in that? God is great through the little one. God showed himself faithful when he was an enemy. And now Paul takes the Greek name, uh, Saul takes the Greek name. And little note here, from this time forward, there are two other instances in the book of Acts where you see Barnabas and Saul. And that has to do with Barnabas. From this time on, it's always been Barnabas and Saul. From this moment on Cyprus, this this game-changing moment, to the rest of his life, what we will read are these words, Paul and Barnabas. Because Paul is the one that God called to do this. And Paul becomes the leader of that, 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 that group, that two people, that pair. Just a little side note, uh, archaeology, do you love archaeology? We're not afraid of archaeology. Archaeology has confirmed what Luke said here. Uh, it all started with Paul teaching the Gentiles with the Roman governor of Cyprus and Sir William Ramsey found, literally, dug up, found inscriptions on Cyprus bearing the name Sergius Paulus and confirming that he was a Christian and that his entire family was a Christian. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's what happened when the Holy Spirit sent somebody on mission to Cyprus. And through the opposition, and overcoming in Christ, Sergius Paulus came to Christ. So, you up for the adventure? You know, think of Shackleton, you know? Hazardous journey, long stretches of daylight, miserable conditions, return doubtful. (laughs) You up for the, the adventure? God is calling you through His Scriptures today, calling me to mission in a fresh way. What would it look like for you in your life to be more outward-facing? You know, it's fall of the year and a beginning of a new year of ministry as school kind of starts and you kind of crank it back up, you know, uh, in the in the life of the church. A new beginning. And one of the things that some of your staff leaders have been discussing is, is what it would look like for each of the ministries of Highlands to become more outward facing in 2013. What would that look like? What would it look like for us to find new ways, I mean we'll train you in evangelism, we have that every year, to, to equip you to reach out more in your neighborhood and your places of work or school. What would it look like to have more cross-cultural missions opportunities and mission trips from this church? I tell you what it'd look like. It'd look a lot like Acts 13. It'd look like lives being changed by the power of Jesus Christ, and it would look like opposition to the gospel. That's why it's an adventure. And it would look like overcoming through Jesus. And because of that overcoming, even more lives changed. Including our own in the midst of this adventure. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead us to be desirous of your will desires to be salt and light. Thank you for how you've been doing that. We would ask you to set our hearts on a pilgrimage this morning beyond what we have known. We pray, Lord, that you would overcome through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and that hundreds, even through this church, even through people who want to have faith and And follow you. Hundreds would eat and live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.